And um, there's more than one perspective on this next section. Be clear what the next section is. But the question mark is, why is it saying? I think my preference is to envision verse 12 to 17 having an effect. The people repent. Now, I don't know if we should see this as the people really repent, or he's saying, if you repent, here's what will happen. But I suspect that we're assuming the repentance that's um, exhorted in 12 to 17, and as a result of that, God acts in 18 to 27. Some people might think because the punishment already took place, and now God, the punishment has had its effect. But I think I'd prefer seeing this as either uh, the, the repentance really occurred, or if it occurs, you know, here's what will happen. So, would somebody read 18 to 27? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as we do. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make you make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. What do you see in this passage overall? Restoration and blessing? Yes. I think what you see is sort of a reversal of the devastation uh, primarily in chapter 1. You see there the locust plague. Here you see God inverting the effects of the locust plague. And so... I'm saying, assuming the repentance, this is what God's grace accomplishes for his people. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. And will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, and what you see him doing is almost like making up for the punishment that they had received. Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil. What did we learn about the grain, new wine, and oil in chapter 1? And what had happened to them? 
they were dried up, they were ruined, they failed. That's 110. Now he gives them the grain, the new wine. Oh, you'll be satisfied and full with it. I'll never again make you approach reproach among the nations. You can look back to uh, 217. That's what they're worried about, is uh, them being a reproach among the nations. So, in general, this is God restoring them after they repent. Do you have some comments and questions on this general idea before we look at some of the specifics? <coughs> okay? Um, there's just a number of things here that are uh, interesting, to me at least. Um, he has uh, the, the northern army, in verse 20, driven away into a partially desolate land, and then then part of it goes into the eastern sea, part of it into the western sea. Now, where would the, what would be the eastern and western sea? Western sea is easy. Mediterranean, the eastern sea, maybe the Dead Sea, uh, perhaps the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, you know, that, that destroys the army. However, there's this foul smell that comes up from all these rotting bugs, the way I'm looking at it. And uh, it's kind of like... There are times when sin still have, has its effect. You know, you still get the stench of it, even though it's been forgiven. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, there are consequences. Think about David. Did God forgive David of his sins? And the text says he did. You know, that's what Nathan told him. And Psalm 32, David praises God for the forgiveness he received. Did the consequences of those sins remain? Yeah, they did. I mean, the sword still didn't depart from his house. His concubines were violated by his own son on the same rooftop of which he'd seen Bathsheba and all of that. There are plenty of times that there's still the smell we have to deal with, but at least God takes away this northern army. As we said earlier, Jeremiah especially talks a lot about the, 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 the army and the threat coming out of the north. And he was dealing with the Babylonians. The Babylonians, as the crow flies, were what direction from Israel? They were east. But they're always depicted as coming from the north, almost always, uh, because they couldn't come straight across. That was desert. And so they would come around the Fertile Crescent, and so they'd come into Israel from the north. However they come into you, that's where they seem like they're coming from, and that's how you would look at them. So the threat from the north, so he depicts this locust bite as a threat from the north. The north just ends up sort of symbolizing where the enemy comes from, where the terrible judgment of God originates. So, so he takes this northern army and he drives it off into the sea. And uh, the smell is terrible because it has done great things. I mean, that army, the locusts, they were, they've done devastating things. You've got a lot of locusts to contend with there. You know, you get a bunch of those rotting in the sea, what would you expect it's going to smell? Uh, all right, comments and questions through verse 20. What is a banging on? Where, where's that at? I was afraid somebody asked me that. I think that's the front of it, isn't yes. it? Okay. That'd be kind of like the advanced, you know, kind of troops that, that lead the way. Other questions that come? 
Yeah. Were you saying that uh, they were drowned? Yeah, I think so. Like, and where do you keep <coughs> up with that exactly? Well, he drives him into the sea. Yeah. Was I guess that's where, what I said. That? Verse twenty. Does it say that he drives him into the sea. Though? Verse twenty. It's New Matthew Standard translated differently. New Matthew King James Standard. Or New James reads, he drove his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the west. Oh, really? So that, that's that's the translation difference. It's huge between the New Matthew Standard and the New King James. Okay. Well, it says toward, not to yeah, 20 in numeric standard is, but I will remove the northern army far from you and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. Translational things do get us, Chris. And he's done that before in Egypt how he got rid of them. And they finally, finally said, yeah, go ahead and get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Provided a land and pollute them into the sea. So it's a uh, divine method of dealing with locusts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Look at 21. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. The great things of the Lord sort of match the great things of the locusts. Even though they were his army, ultimately the Lord is the one who does the great things. He's the one who brings the judgments. He's the one who removes the judgments. And so he says, do not fear. Now, he says that to the land in verse 21. Who does he say that to in verse 22? The beasts. The beasts. And implicitly, perhaps, in verse 23, to the sons of Zion. Um, So, all the the various entities here should not fear because the Lord is turning things around. In verse 22, it's the beasts that have the pasture now. Now it's the fig tree and the vine that are yielding. There's the rain, in verse 23, that evidently had not come. There's the full threshing floors and vats. Verse 24, you remember, I mean, verse by verse, you can think back to different things in chapter 1 that now are the opposite as God is giving them back for all the devastation that they received. Yes, Um, With my translation in verse 20, I found it interesting, instead of saying great, it says because he's done monstrous things, and then when it speaks of the Lord, it says he's done marvelous things. And this is kind of a comparison of the, the type of action of the restoration. Yeah, good point. I think it's probably the same word in the original, but the greatness can be in two separate directions, as clearly it was here. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yes, Heidi. Um, I think verse 26 and 27 is talking about, you know, the Lord has felt wondrously with them, kind of harking back, and someone already alluded to this, um, to the Exodus, and the really showing forth of God's power and might in such a dramatic way, and how they're, they're basically being told, in not so many words, that don't think this has been removed or taken away from you because of something you've done, because they just left. This is what I've done. I am worthy of this grace, and not anything else. Good point. 
Other comments? You know, so you see how the Lord has, has dealt with all of this. It really shows you God's presence, verse 27. It reminds me of a passage like Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. You know, God makes up for all that has happened. You know, he says in verse 25, I'll make up to you for the years. I think it's almost like God gives them more produce to make up for the years they had less. That's amazing. God's grace is the incredible thing in stories like this. He is the Lord their God. He is going to bless them. He's going to help them. Again, remember that even when we repent, God's blessings are by His grace. You know, if if somebody, you know, does some terrible thing to you and then says, oh, I'm sorry. You know, it's like, well, that didn't exactly make up for what they did. That was pretty easy to say, you know. But God in His grace and mercy takes the sin away from us. All right, any other comments or questions through 27? Yes, Sarah. Um, just for some reason, I had this circled and I didn't have a chance to figure out why. But in verse 18, it talks about the Lord will be zealous for his land. And I'm thinking that that's a contrast from the way he was before. He is, I guess you could say, zealous against, his, uh, against the land by sending the locusts and, and, and all of that. But it's. He's, he's changing his perspective on this as well. He is indeed. Good point. Patrick. Um, we talked a lot about God's grace being totally independent of our actions. Um, and just a general comment on that. I mean, we've also talked about um, understanding the pain of others and things like that today. Well, just a general comment to try to bring that all together. I mean, many of us in our lives, at one point or another, have been hurt by someone. I mean, like what you said. Someone has done something to us that has hurt us so bad, and all they say, oh, sorry. I mean, sometimes that makes it worse. You know, when when we feel so hurt and betrayed by someone, and all they say is, sorry. And what I see more than ever is what glory it brings to God when we can be Christ-like and show God's grace in us to them. And I mean, to think about how great God's grace is to these people, I mean, to think of what, what God's people has done to him over the years and that he still imparts this grace to us, it's amazing to see the grace of our God. And how could we not show that grace to others? I mean, I guess my point is, let's not just look at this as, you know, the nation back then. This is us. Let, let's think, this grace has also been shown to us in an even greater way in Christ. I mean, how could we not love God for His grace, and how could we not show others the very same grace? Amen. Same. I think something 
going along with that, it's so amazing is the Lord is so zealous for us. I mean, it says in the verse 18 that we'll be zealous for his land for his people. He, he told us in verse 12 and 13, he told these people the exact way to repent. He told them what I'm asking of you is this and spelled it out. You know, spelled it out completely what they needed to do. This is a God that wants them so badly to repent and is so willing. I mean, in five verses, this repentance, and then his blessing. This is not, well, let me think about it. This is instantaneous. I love you. You've repented. Here's my blessing. This is a God that is so willing to forgive. And whether we deserve it or not, should we expect it? No. Should, do we think we should, I should say, do we deserve it? And that's why we expect it? No. We should expect it who God is and how willing he is to give that to us because he loves us so much. And his zeal for us is amazing. Amen. Very good. Other thoughts, comments, discussion. Like the song, for He has promised, and I believe that God promises this very thing. Shane points out when when we repent, He will He will turn His favor toward us, and we can have great confidence in that. He is a God that has that character. He's a gracious, merciful, loving, forgiving God. What a blessing that he is. What an amazing thing that he is. And he's just shown that over and over again. Very good. Well, as you think about the structure of this book, obviously 12 to 17 in chapter 2 is kind of a turning point. You know, before you had, from my interpretation, the Logos flag that was passed and the impending day of the Lord. Kind of two uh, types of judgment and devastation. The second one much more serious than the first. Then you have the call to repentance. And based on the repentance, you have in 18 to 27 the blessing of kind of the reversal of chapter 1's locust play. But just as there were kind of two phases of judgment, the second being much worse than the first, so there's two phases of blessing. We've seen the blessings in 18 to 27, but now starting in 28, after that, much greater blessings, more ultimate blessings. So you have two phases of judgments, the second worse than the first, two phases of blessings, the second much deeper and greater than the first. So 18 to 27 is sort of dealt with the locust plague, but now after this, we see an even more astonishing outpouring of the grace and mercy and blessing of God. So, verse 28 to 32. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Okay, so after this, what does God do? What does he say he does? Pour out his spirit. Pours out his spirit. 
Now, when you think of the idea of pouring out, what kind of thing do you think about? Yeah, like water or some kind of liquid. Does that fit in with the overall context here in, in Joel? Drink offering is not what I was thinking about. Rain. Yeah, the rain or the lack of it. You know, you have the drought and God making up for that. God bringing the, the rain in verse 23. But now God pours out something even greater. Not only water, but he pours out his own spirit on all mankind. So he's really looking beyond more or less the material blessings of 18 to 27 to think of greater ultimate spiritual blessings that God pours out. Now, he makes the point in 28 and 29 who he pours his spirit out on. And who does he pour his spirit on? Yes. Like who? So he erases the distinctions. He pours it out on both genders, all ages, people of every economic status and class. He's so generous. In the Old Testament, you would see perhaps God's Spirit being poured out selectively. Uh, think about like a passage like Numbers chapter 11. I, I think this is a helpful uh, background passage for this. I don't know if you remember this story or not. But uh, in Numbers 11, 26, two men had remained in the camp, Eldad and Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran in verse 27 and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. You know, there's always people trying to stop, you know, the Lord's work. Even good people sometimes, you know, like, uh, was it John that had tried to keep that guy from casting out demons in, in Mark and, and so forth. You know, uh, let, let's restrain him. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses is longing for a day when God would put his spirit on all and not just Eldad and Medad. And uh, the, the fulfillment of that is here. As God brings even those who might have been outsiders into receiving the blessings of his spirit. Now, that whole concept of God pouring out His Spirit is something that's found quite often in the prophets as sort of a way of describing the blessings in the Messiah. I'll show you uh, two or three passages. There's plenty more. In Isaiah 32, 15, he abandons his people until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. That's Isaiah 32, 15. Isaiah 44 and verse uh, 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. 
And that whole context is helpful there in Isaiah 44, uh, 1 through 5. Um, Ezekiel uh, uses that uh, idea also. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Ezekiel chapter 11 um, and verse 19, he'll put a new spirit within them. He describes that a little bit more fully in uh, Ezekiel 36 and verse 27. I will put my spirit within you uh, and so forth. So the idea in the Old Testament prophets is in the Messiah, God would put his spirit on his people. He'd pour out his spirit. Pouring out almost gives you the idea of the abundance. And, and he was, it was going to be for all men. The, the New Testament looks at the Messianic age as the era of the Spirit. I might suggest for you 2 Corinthians 3. You can look at that passage several times. That the Spirit almost implies the Gospel and the Messianic blessings. Because it, it, through the Spirit... God poured out these blessings upon us. And I would also cite, I know I'm citing several passages, we'll see if we can pull this together in a second, but look at Titus 3. And Titus 3 is really helpful in kind of drawing us into this. In Titus 3, this is a, a really good passage we don't use as often maybe as we should. He says in Titus 3, 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we are the people who have been saved by his mercy by the washing of regeneration. What's the washing of regeneration referred to? That is the washing that regenerates us. And renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We are those that the Holy Spirit has been poured out richly upon. We have been so blessed by that. Now, I would uh, suggest this. That one mistake we often make when we talk about the Holy Spirit is that we sort of tend to pigeonhole the Holy Spirit's work into just one direction. And so a lot of times when you think about the Holy Spirit, you think about tongues and miracles and prophesying. Now that's a part of the work that the Holy Spirit has done. But we shouldn't think that every time we see the Holy Spirit, that automatically we're going to have special spiritual gifts. I don't believe that anybody has the special spiritual gifts today, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us, really in more than one way. We are the blessed recipients of the work of the Holy Spirit in the first century when he did reveal and confirm his word. And we have all the benefits of their having been able to prophesy and their having received the Spirit. And then I believe that the Spirit is poured out in our lives as well as we receive the Lord into our lives. And so that 
we in every way are the people who have been blessed by the, the, the Spirit, even though we ourselves are not perhaps speaking in a tongue or prophesying, since those were works of the Holy Spirit that were fulfilled in the first century. So when you think of the Spirit, don't automatically just think of those things. He mentions some of those things here as illustrations of what the Spirit does, and we are blessed by those. But the work of the Spirit is much broader than just those things. So, in the future, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all. A much greater blessing than just dealing with the locust plague. Look at is he dealing here strictly with prophecy um, of what's going to come in the New Testament, or is there some kind of preliminary fulfillment in the remnant? I always hesitate to uh, not allow the possibility of some preliminary fulfillment, but I think the primary preliminary fulfillment of this passage <laughs> is 18 to 27. I, this is after this. And so, I don't see much preliminary here. I think we're really looking, Peter said in Acts 2, this is that. So I really think this is pretty much looking toward the Messiah. I mean, remember a passage like John chapter 7, which also fits very well with so many passages. John 7 and verse 37 now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we really see the, the Spirit coming and sort of the age of the Spirit in Jesus going back up to heaven and sending the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and thereafter. Other thoughts and comments uh, through 29 of Joel 2? Is there a, is there a uh, inappropriate limitation in seeing the Spirit as only working through the written word that we have today. I think it's inappropriate to see the Spirit as only working through the written word, although clearly the written word is the sword that he uses and is an important tool, but I would not want to limit his word. Right. You know, I talk to people... The problem in Jesus is that you're free to understand and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then I'm talking to someone. I mean, how do you, how can you, what do you feel comfortable saying how the Holy Spirit works in our lives today? You know what I mean? If you want to take that step further. Because I don't, I don't know much, really. I don't know what to say. Well, the question is how. I don't have a how. You know, I believe that the Lord, through His Spirit, works in us today. I don't. Th- I, I might be able more easily able to say what he doesn't do. I don't think he whispers in your ear and you know tells you little messages or something yeah. like that. Right. You know, but I, I, the Lord works in us. Uh, it's kind of like a- asking the question: How does God answer prayer? You know, how does God do that? 
I have no idea how it does that. I suppose if you told me, I wouldn't have understood it anyway. So that's kind of where I look at some of those things. I don't have a how. Uh, but I do believe he's active and operates in our lives. Larry. Yeah. One thing we know is that people talk about having the Spirit, having the Spirit, having the Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict what he has revealed in Scripture. So someone who claims to have the Spirit, to be guided by the Spirit, but contradicts what the Holy Spirit has revealed is not of the Spirit. We know that. Excellent point. He's not going to contradict himself. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of, you know, people thinking, well, the Spirit told me this, you know, I found out that, you know, I'm supposed to marry this, you know, woman that, you know, has no right to be married, you know, is that Spirit told me that was the right thing for me or whatever. Well, no. You know, how did you know it was God's Spirit that told you that? There are other spirits in the world, according to 1 John 4, and if it contradicts the revelation of the Holy Spirit, then I have a pretty good idea what the Holy Spirit that told you that. What was that passage that just said about the other spirits? First John 4. Isn't that right? Yeah. Living not every spirit, but test the spirit. Yeah. It's a false one. Yeah. False practice. Yeah. Now, he, that's not all he says here. Um... He kind of closes off 28-29 with that idea of pouring out my spirit and then pouring out my spirit. But there's some other things that accompany this. Verse 30 and 31 are challenging for me. Maybe they're not for you. Uh, but I'll tell you what I think about them anyway. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I believe that the point of this, and I would cite maybe passages in Zechariah as sort of parallel to this concept, is that these passages that speak of the great blessings of Christ on his people are not talking about all of the descendants of Israel because there were many that were unfaithful. And so in many of these passages talk about the great blessings, he also talks about the judgments and punishments for those who don't turn to the Lord in faith. I take 30 or 31 as being judgments. You know, you've got the great outpouring of the Spirit, but but you also have the judgments of God against those who don't believe, those who aren't faithful, those who reject His Spirit. And so I say that the outpouring of the Spirit and the work of Christ results in salvation and judgment. Salvation though to those who turn to the Lord and judgment for those who don't. So I see 30 and 31 as balancing this. It's not going to be like automatic, unlimited salvation for all men. It's going to be the pouring out of the Spirit and the judgment on the wicked and unfaithful. I think the very same concept is found in Matthew, I mean, the point was Matthew 3, where John is saying, you know, fruit of vipers, and then he says, you know, uh, talking about the fact, numbers 10, 8, now the axe is laid through the tree, therefore every tree is not very good fruit is cast down, thrown in the fire. I need that you with water and repentance, but he was coming after me, he's minor than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
his winnowing fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into it. The barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the separation of those, the call, the pouring out, and even Peter on the day of Pentecost says, save yourselves from this untold generation. And I think it's destruction, and I could be wrong, but I mean it may be more general, but I think it's the destruction that's coming on the nation. The gathering into the barn of those who are his, and the separation of those who are not, the judgment upon the nation. Yeah, and that idea even <coughs> being baptized with the Spirit and fire. You've got those two options. Yeah, I agree with that, and those, that's a helpful passage. So you come to verse 32, and it will come about, come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. There is deliverance and salvation, mercy, for those who turn to the Lord, for those who call on his name. God's people have nothing to fear from this judgment. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So, he is promising deliverance for those who call the name of the Lord. Now look back at Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Um, because there's a remarkable correlation of Peter's sermon with this passage in Joel 2.32. Now, Peter in verses 17 to 21 cites this text of Joel. And, and look at the correspondence between 2.32 of Joel and 2.21 of Acts. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he stops there in the citation. But I want you to notice something. We're looking at about three points here from Acts 2. First of all, Peter's sermon tells about the Lord they need to call on in 22 to 36. And then in 38, Peter tells them how to call on the name of the Lord. Now just look at the correlation between Acts 2.21 and Acts 2.38. In 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he explains what that means in 2.38. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. How do you call? You repent and be baptized. What's the name of the Lord? The name of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be saved? It means to have the forgiveness of your sins. So step by step, he elaborates 2.21. But that's not all. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Look at the end of 2.32 in Joel. Even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Though Peter didn't cite that part of the quotation, he's still thinking about it, and he mentions it's for those the Lord calls, the very thing that the end of 2.32 in Joel says. It's an illustration of a lot of things, but among other things, and you see this constantly. The New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, do the very same thing we do when we cite an Old Testament passage. Or any, when we cite a passage. They not only refer to the words they cite, but they refer to the context also. If I mention the Ethiopian eunuch to you, I don't just mean the fact he was from Ethiopia and he was a eunuch. I'm talking about that whole story about the Ethiopian eunuch. 
you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, the action of baptism. I said, well, it's just like the Ethiopian eunuch. And you know I'm thinking about the fact that Philip and him both went down to the water and he baptized them. They both came up out of the water. But I only have to say the Ethiopian eunuch in the connection with baptism being an immersion. You know what I mean. Well, when he cited that passage of Joel, he goes on and makes an allusion to the rest of the passage, even though he didn't specifically cite those words. So I think Acts 2, coming back to kind of a more global point, shows the fulfillment of this. The spirits poured out. The judgment on the unfaithful would be coming. Save yourself from this untoward generation. That's what he'll go on and say in Acts 2, 40. And Here's how you can escape and be delivered by calling on the name of the Lord, that is, by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Acts 2 really helps us see what Joel 2 is talking about. Comments and questions on all that? I may have gone into that more fully than I should have. This may be just how it's translated into English, but... I really appreciate the choice of words in, in verse 32 where it says, calls on the name of the Lord. It's not called on the name of the Lord. It's a continual process. And you see that it's, it's reciprocal between us and God. God continues to call us to Him. And we have to do it every single day, calling on Him, instead of just doing it some days, not others, or whenever we're baptized, and then the rest of our lives are fine. It's a continual process. Good point. Other comments? Okay, look at chapter 3. 